Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today I'm joined in with a very, very special guest, a very good friend of mine actually from originally from the UK. Um, he's now living in Australia. Um, Coach Jay Carter. So we, we actually met uh, on IG uh, many, 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 it was actually about a year and a half ago. Um, Seems like longer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Jeez, has that only been a year and a half? Crazy, man. Yeah, unreal. Wow. So, yeah, we just basically just started, you know, messaging on there and sharing some some cool biohacks and health hacks. And, um, and then he mentioned he was coming down to Australia and then we met up and we started um, planning some cool stuff together. And, and, and now we're here. So, Jake, thanks for thanks for coming on the show, man. No, honestly, man, it's a pleasure. I just want to take this moment to say, it's, it's, I can't believe it's only been a year and a half, but throughout that year and a half, you've, you've, you've come from being just someone on Instagram to someone what I'd class as my best friend. So it's been an absolute privilege and honor to meet you. And I can seriously say that there's, there's no one else there out there in the world like you, you know? So you, you're, you're so uh, giving, you're so caring, you know, more people need to be like you. And it's a shame that people don't get a chance to, to see this because they see you for Lucas on Instagram and they see you for the wizard, which you are. But there's also this other beautiful side to you where you're so caring, so kind, so respectful. And 
being around you makes me a better person just from how your characteristics are and your whole family is beautiful so you know i just want to say thank you for um i'm not sure i don't know who reached out first i don't know but um thank you for the friendship which has blossomed from this and i, I know it's going to be a lifelong friendship we speak practically every day you know sometimes multiple times a day so i'm i'm, I'm surprised it's only been a year and a half because it feels like a lifetime it's crazy in a good man. way yeah, I appreciate that. Very, very humbled there. Um, so thanks, man. And there's a lot of there's a lot of you know traits in you that I look up to as well. And I guess that's probably why we're always like pushing each other, making each other grow, and progressing all the time. Um, whether mm. that's business mindset, whatever. Um, and more so now towards like spirituality, which is sort of an area that you know you've you've segmented towards. You know, you've sort of um, departed more and more away from you know the Oh, I guess like the, the vanity of, of bodybuilding um, and now like leaning yourself towards more like altruistic like behaviors and things like that. So do you want to share with our listeners because they don't know anything about you. So you want to tell them a little bit about what you're all about, you know, what you do as well? Yeah. Okay, cool. So my goal is basically to blend traditional medicine with conventional advances and enable people to understand the true capacity of the human body because quite frankly, all that information is oppressed, suppressed, and hidden so far away from us. And we are taught in this reductionist mindset. We're limited to possibly just the five senses, what we can logically comprehend, but yet we know people can feel emotions. There's empathy, there's intuition. There's many different aspects to this. And this is only scraping the surface because when we look into the kind of healing capacity of the human body, there is many different modalities. But with the conventional system, it views the body through a compartmentalized scope. It looks at the symptom through a keyhole into its relative silos and treats that symptom as the issue when, as we all know, the symptom is quite often the trap and we need to go as far away from the symptom as possible to find the root cause. For instance, a good example here would be if someone has depression, PTSD, and they have gut health issues and they go see a gastroenterologist for their gut health. But really, it could be they are having this perpetual state of stress from living in the sympathetic dominance from PTSD. So if you're still going to use the conventional route, you'd probably go see something like a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapist. And by improving their psychology, you could possibly improve their gut health. Now that's just a a really basic example. I mean, we could even look at if someone's got uh, eczema, psoriasis, they may go see a dermatologist, but in this case, they're probably better off seeing the gastroenterologist. And this is where the conventional system is really kind of rigid and fixed. And we know it's dysfunctional. We know it's not working because we have now autism, one in 36. We have one in two to three will have cancer. We have the male testosterone levels dropping by 53% since 1970. We have even on the handshakes, right? I, I, I found this, you'll love this one. I've got the notes here on my phone because I was meant to text you and I just, just got busy. But this, this just shows the kind of change, not just in the physiology or the psychology, but also in a behavioral mechanism. So when we look at the average man's handshake, the pressure in 1986 was 118 pounds. In 2016, it's 96 pounds. So you can see how much the handshake's dropping. But the interesting thing is that the woman's handshake in 1986 was 105 pounds. Now, when it was stood in 2016, it's 110 pounds. So there's 
there's an interesting difference and change there. And, you know, we could, <laughs> I, I could hypothesize why there's um, certain changes. But nonetheless, we are exposed to a barrage of all these untested, unprecedented chemicals, which is just a constant onslaught to our own well-being. We have phthalates, we have BPA, we have EDCs, we have arsenic, we have mercury, we have aluminium, we have all these different threats, quite often, which we are told that they are fine, similar to the tobacco science, saying, oh, it's good, your doctor smokes camel, go and smoke a couple of cigarettes. And we are unaware. So my goal is to really bring forth the damage which is being done, make people aware of the risks and the hazards, what they're possibly exposed to, but also to allow them to really illuminate their path on their way to improved health. And when I speak about health, health isn't something you can master. It's always requiring you to nurture it. And it's, it's multifactorial, it's multidimensional. It encompasses the mind, encompasses the relationships. It's your environmental health. It's also your, your hormonal health, your gut health, you name it. And that's my kind of passion, my ethos now. But I started from in the fitness industry, um, you know, do, being a personal trainer and getting into nutrition, biochem, and then gradually functional medicine to the point now where I uh, lecture globally. I've, I've, we tallied it up um, last year. I did 54 flights. I, I've taught in over 10 different countries. I work with clients from over 25 different countries now. So it's um, a beautiful journey, and I feel privileged and honored to be able to find my passion so early on and relentlessly stick to it. And I'm honestly privileged that other people out there can see the value in what I also find valuable. Because without the people out there, then I wouldn't be where I am today. So, you know, all my gratitude and respect goes to everyone else because they've enabled this to happen. And I'm, I'm so happy for it. Yeah. I mean, I can relate there, man. I mean, we're both pretty lucky in that sense. Um, mm. In a you know, young age, we're able to find the things that we love doing and then, you know, being able to benefit millions of people at the same time. It's, it's a win-win. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Was there, for you, was there like a pivotal moment, like a particular moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was, but I'm not sure if we're allowed to speak about this on your podcast. <laughs> so we can do that another time if you want. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep that so, yeah you, you'll know what that is. So, yeah. Um, so, Again, today, obviously, we we've, it's pretty much free-for-all, but um, yeah, we did have some topics in mind, um, mm-hmm. and uh, although they are very controversial, um, I do want to speak openly and sort of, um, I would like to hear your perspective, and I know mm-hmm. that you love to challenge the status quo, which is yeah. why I think you've earned a lot of respect and people you know, value your opinion so much because you really fight for what you believe in and people mm-hmm. see that and people respect that and, and and I do as well. And so I guess, you know, the one thing that you've been, you know, oh, not, not so much pushing but like really standing up for is like, you know, medical autonomy, um, you know, the, the, you know, in regards to um, vaccines, things like that, um, wearing masks. Um, so, we can 
we can touch on that on those topics if you want. Um, yeah. You know, I know yeah. I know you've researched it quite a lot, and um, yeah, and you've already you know you've, you've interviewed some very influential figures from the US. Um, mm-hmm. I won't drop their names here just in case. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, do you want to like? I want to start out maybe with the, the most recent one, the, the the general blue masks that people mm-hmm. been told in, in Melbourne. Because obviously I'm, you know, based in Melbourne, so we've been all told that we can't leave the house without a mask now. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, let's just let's just go a chunk above that, right? Okay, let's just have a look on social media, right? Okay, and social media, there's such things called banned hashtags. Yeah. Now, did you know natural immunity is a banned hashtag? And medical freedom is a banned hashtag. So really we have to look at this and think, why would natural immunity be something which they are banning you from finding information on? Why would medical freedom be something what they're banning you from finding information on? And, you know, it doesn't take two cells in the brain to really put this together and think, well, are they trying to hide something here? But I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm just going to tell you what it is and you can come to your own hypothesis. So, yeah, when we're looking at the the masks, well, there's, again, there's different schools of thought here, okay? And when you actually look at the masks, we look at... The countries which have applied them so far, have they worked? Well, the real thing here is they've not. Because you have some people saying, oh, well, Japan applied masks and they have done much better. But you look at Japan and they have a much lower obesity rate. They are much healthier and they are much less stressed, right? And then some people can argue about like the, the Japanese diet. Some people say it's one of the healthiest diets that are out there. And, you know, it's cultivated. You've got some fermented foods in there. You've got some, if you think puffers are good, then it's got some puffers. You know, I'm on the fence with that one. Um, but then you could look at, well, another argument against the mass theory is a lot of Middle Eastern countries in the religion, they have to cover their face. But yet their death rate is still so high. And then we could look at the just this simple comparison of the mask what you'd wear to spray your car versus the mask what you'd wear to protect yourself from a global pandemic virus, which has apparently killed a lot of people. You know, so there's there's many different things there and challenges. Now I understand that some people say that well, the the mask is to reduce the transmission of the disease. Okay. And I understand that is a theory. That's if you're basing it on Louis Pasteur's theory of the germ. Okay. Now Louis Pasteur's theory of the germ is that the germ will give you the disease. Now this is what the conventional medical system is based upon. But yet when we change this theory, when we look into Beecham's theory, which is instead of being the germ theory, it's the terrain theory. If we start considering this and thinking, well, is our environment something which is influencing the disease? Is it our toxic exposure? Is it the lack of our nutrients and all these other factors? That completely amputates the third leg of which the conventional system stands upon. 
because now it takes you away from the pharmaceutical based model and instead it's preventative because you actually start incorporating lifestyle changes and environmental changes to allow health for everyone. So there's that theory, which we can even take into account and consider, but I'm not even going to go down that route much further. Instead, we can even look at, well, some people say the, the masks are there to stop the transmission of the disease. But when we look at the transmission from asymptomatic carriers, there's a study done with 455 patients and not one person was um, able to catch the, um, the disease from these asymptomatic carriers. So again, yes, they're wearing masks, but really, is it that vigilant? And then we could even look into how people say, well, you know, the masks have um, a two to three times greater capacity to allow the virus through because the, the virus, I'm trying to not say what virus just to make sure you don't get banned. The virus is on average two to three times smaller than the filtration capacity of the N95 masks. So the N95 mask, so the media's gold standard mask, and it's capable of eliminating particles that are 0.3 UM or larger. Now, the virus has a diameter of 60 to 140 nanometers. So this is around two to three smaller than the actual holes in the N95 mask. So then people come back with the argument saying, well, the virus is attached to water droplets and the water droplets is then contained within the mask. Well, then if that is the case, okay, you're basically having a Petri dish on your face because now you're, you're, you're collecting all this stuff that the body's trying to emit and repel and it's, it's staying in front of you and in, in your breathing area, okay? So that's going to be not too cool. But then we could look at well, what's the goal here anyway? What is the end goal? The end goal is to create immunity. Some people think that immunity has to be acquired immunity or from vaccines, whereas other people, they know about natural immunity. They know about innate immunity. They know about our immune system. And... If you are healthy and you catch the virus and you get rid of it, then you're going to be doing a service for everyone else because you're decreasing the rate of transmission. You're enabling to actually protect the community. Same with the whole herd immunity hypothesis, but this is the natural way of doing it, which is non-invasive, it's faster. And, you know, Sweden, they didn't implement a quarantine or masks to my knowledge, I may be wronger, but to my knowledge, they didn't. And they have got a much lower death rate now. Yes, they may have initially had a higher death rate, but we know the death rates were falsified. Similar to when we look at the, the number of deaths anyway with influenza, I can, I can segue onto this study in a second, but we look at the number of deaths from influenza per year and the CDC actually encompasses that with pneumonia and influenza. Then you take the pneumonia out and the, the actual death rates uh, for influenza, I can literally find it you right now. Um, it is, where is it? It's heavily inflated uh, by anywhere from 84% to 835% by simply taking the pneumonia out and looking at the influenza deaths solely from what they are. And we can see all these falsifications of these numbers, which is promulgating fear. And then when we look at fear anyway, fear stimulates the stress response, which will therefore decrease the immunity anyway, which is not a good thing. But that's a different thing we can speak about there too. Yeah. 
So, you know, there's many different topics, but just since we, you, we brought up the masks, you know, there's, there's an accumulation of different data. And some people are saying, well, these are RCTs or there's studies showing that it's effective. But, you know, there's, there's, there's all different chains of thought here, but we could just look at the decrease of oxygen. Now, some people say there's, there's videos of a doctor and he was wearing a mask and he tested it and it didn't lead to any changes in their oxygen. But yet there's multiple other videos online, not just one, where they've kind of disputed this and proved it to be wrong and that it will lead to a decreased level of oxygen and increased level of carbon dioxide. Now, when you take this into account, it may not be enough to stimulate clinical hypoxia but it is a hypoxic environment. It is a lessened oxygen environment. And then we look at the essentiality for oxygen. Well, we know that oxygen is needed um, because it feeds life. You know, we need oxygen to live. And when there's a lack of oxygen, we'll have increased inflammation. It'll inhibit our immune cells, which are responsible for viral infections. And then the more concerning factor is that reduced levels of oxygen can enhance the furin expression. And this is the protein responsible for cleaving the spike protein and enabling the, um, the virus to enter the cell. So when we don't have oxygen there, the furin mechanism, the furin expression is increased and it could increase the severity of the, the, uh, the virus itself. So there's many different factors, many, many different factors what we can look at here. But we look at the the safety and the actual validity of the, all this data and we're just being a, a, a test experiment you know we're just being guinea pigs when we look at the death rate from when we look at the death rate from let's say influenza it's much higher but we've got a vaccine for that already which people take on a yearly basis and we've had that for we've had the influenza vaccine i think it's for like 73 years or so and it's a higher death rate, but not once have we done this to the economy. Not once have we done this to the people. Not once have we taken the liberty and freedom away. So, you know, there's many things in the masks, but it, it, rather than getting onto it too much, you know, the you, you have to question, well, what's the end goal? Is it immunity? Because if it's immunity, then my immune system is going to be better when I'm actually able to breathe, expel the virus. Does this mask actually hold in the virus if the virus is three times smaller? Is the theory of which the virus is uh, modeled around, which is um, Pasteur's theory, which I want to add on his deathbed, he said that he was wrong. The terrain is everything. So he was actually going against his his own germ theory, but it seems like that's suppressed. And then you get, when whenever I mention like B-Champs theory, people go, oh, well, it's just a conspiracy. It's like saying to me, what do you think the world is flat? It's like, what? <laughs> like, the, first of all, a conspiracy means a group of people coming together to talk, right? A theory, everything is theorized, okay? And technically nothing is proven in science anyway. Right. So already the flawed with this, but you actually look into it further and further and further and you can see more evidence pointing towards this terrain theory, which is leading to illness. We look at things like the DDT exposure and how that led to polio. We can look at people which live close to um, high voltage power lines and they've got an increased rate of cancer. And this is all to do with the terrain. And this is something which we are not taking into account and which we are getting a press name called and they're using schoolyard tactics to kind of shunt down 
people from discussing it. Yeah, there's a lot to um, a lot to unpack there, obviously. Um, but mm. you, you did mention um, like fear. I want to. I really would love to talk more about fear because I'm pretty passionate about it, um, and yeah. and I've seen it um, really impact even those really close to me. You know, my my, my parents. You know, like they're. Mm. It's really changed the way that they behave, and um, and obviously fear can be. I'm not going to discredit and say the fear is like it's not necessary. We don't need. It. Obviously, we need it for like survival and and you know being able to fight and self preservation. Um, but I think that you know during this time, the immense amount of fear that the media has you know really reinforced, and obviously like the fir- the very first thing you hear when you you turn on the news. Like I know you don't watch the news, but it's it's <laughs> it's 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 on in the background in my house. Um, yeah. And um, you know the very first thing that you hear is death. Like legitimately, the very first thing is death. Death. Mm. death. Mm. That's yeah, it. It's, it's it's death, unemployment, death. And it's like that. It's like it's like we are now spending this much. It's going to take this many years to recover it. Now this many people are employed and dead 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 and now this it's like it's like you're watching this and it's just barraging you with all this negativity and so if we look at that from like a obviously like from a physiological perspective you know like what that's doing to someone's mindset what that's doing to their immune system and and even just their day-to-day behaviors is just it just drives them into a hole where they they literally they, they can't see out it's like they don't want you to see the light so you're literally buried in this hole and you're surrendering to whatever they're portraying and you know and you ha- you have no choice it sort of mm-hmm. it pushes you into a, a a a position where you really struggle and you have no choice um uh how I, I don't want to get too like yeah political here but um in terms of like the fear like what have you what have you come across in in that realm like the whole fear around the virus like what because yeah, I know you did a few posts you know around fear in general mm, mm. well yeah when when we look at the news there was something called operation mockingbird okay and this is where the CIA infiltrated the media system to kind of push a narrative and this propaganda. And this is an actual thing. And they said it was disbanded, but we know it's not the case because there's, there's been videos of people and it just shows you how the, the news channels are reading word for word, script for script, despite coming from different news channels. We can see things where they'll say this is the hospital is heavily overrun and it'd be a hospital like in Italy or a hospital in China and they're saying it's in Australia or America. Uh, it's, it's just, you can see it's just this narrative. And if we are constantly told something enough, it's like this, this negative affirmation, which we're being reinforced. So when we look at fear, you know, it's, it is basically the currency in which this virus is running on because without the fear, there wouldn't be the kind of uncontrolled actions because we'd be able to think rationally. And we have to remember that we're evolved to um, escape danger, but we're not adapted to sustain pressure. 
And right now, this virus is a pressure. It's not something which we can fight or run away from. It's just pressure from the economic pressure. It's pressure from the news. It's pressure from not being able to do the same thing. And this fear is just really pushing this more and more and more. But it's it's reverberating between everyone. It's in between everyone's breath. It's on their mind. And it's almost intoxicated us as a society because it's teaching us to be in the state of fear. And when you're in the state of fear, then you're stressed. When you're stressed, you become irrational. When you become irrational, you're easier to control because you're not being as grounded. You're not being as centered. You're not thinking rationally. So it is a huge thing from this as well. You know, there's, there's fear before, you know, there's fear before this virus because people were scared of speaking about certain stuff. People, were worried about how they would be viewed and it's been eroding away you know the, the fear has literally been eroding away at society into uh, people's behavioral uh, characteristics it's almost as if we've become so fragile as a society so emotionally sensitive that people soften the blow of the harsh reality and give them the quilt of soft whispering lies just to make sure they don't hurt anyone's feelings. And then from doing so, it causes that integrity to decrease. So when we look at this fear, this fear hasn't just come about. This fear has been happening for a very long, long, long time. And it's come around from people using labels, people using names, people just being so sensitive. And I think for us to get over the fear, we have to develop that integrity and the te- integrity is becoming extinct, you know, and we have to stop being so fragile, stop being so sensitive and literally develop a backbone of what society needs. Because right now we are just bowing down and succumbing into this submission. With the, um, yeah, obviously developing the integrity. I wanted to touch on, um, how does one get themselves out and neg- like out of a, a negative thought loop or like being stuck in like a, you know, feeling trapped and like, cause I know there's a lot of friend, friends of mine who've, you know, come to me and they're like, they're ruminating and they're stuck on the same mm. thing. And like the fear is just, you know, causing them to become so like incapable of just thinking outside the box and just, they're so narrow focused. And so how, how does someone like, how can someone reshape their, perspective what what do they what should they do what what can they do oh well um the, the, again there's multi multifactorials there's multi dimensional aspects because when we look at fear some people may be more responsive to fear from transgenerational trauma and it has changed the epigenetic expression right. some people have different genes themselves, different, like, comp to expression, you know? So this is where you, you're the warrior or the warrior sort of gene, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's many different aspects. We could look at the genes. We could look at the nutrition. If someone's got more parasites, they're going to have less GABA. They're going to have more fear, more irrational phobias. Right. You know, if, if we are exposed to more toxins and toxicants like mercury. Mercury will inhibit compte expression, which can therefore lead to more norepinephrine, which could therefore feed more fear. So it's like, well, how could we get over fear? And the easiest and the, the most essential thing is by improving our health. Get healthy. <laughs> yeah, right. And this, this is the main thing, because when we look at fear, right, 
Fear is an emotion. It could be a, a learned behavioral mechanism. Studies have shown that mice, which were um, sprayed with a sensophenone, this, this fragrance, and electrocuted at the same time, the poor buggers, were conditioned into feeling this sense of fear and pain and shuddering when they had this smell brought upon them. And when they had mice pups, when those mice pups smelt that same fragrance, despite never being electrocuted, they still had the same learned response. Mm-hmm. And then their mice pumps, pups, three generations, had the same learned mechanism. So we can see, well, we're the byproduct from, from decades of war. So just looking at this transgenerational aspect, we have this innate, encoded, programmed sense of fear from constant survival. We look at what we watch, movies, The best movies are always the the ones which are probably going to be the most graphic. It's war. It's got heartbreak. It's got death. And we are seeing this in front of our eyes, and we are just being conditioned to have this response. So that's that, the transgenerational aspect. We could look at the physiological aspect here, and we could look at, well, if we have less GABA, we're going to have one of the symptoms of low GABA is going to be irrational phobias. Yeah. and things like this, you know, and like uh, inability to relax because GABA is the main neurotransmission for inhibition. So if we don't have much GABA, well, why could that be the case? Well, parasites are going to be something which could trash GABA. And then we look at how many people have parasites. Quite a lot of people. We look at what kind of um, species in the gut produces GABA. We've got bifidobacterium. Bifidobacterium is, you know, usually one which is going to tank down Generally speaking, out of the species, this one's going to take a large hit. And therefore, again, our ability to produce GABA could be from um, diminished from having poor gut health. So if we improve our gut health, we can have more GABA. We can therefore mitigate against that fear. We could look at the content expression. We could look at the mercury. We can look at all these different factors. So the first step is by working in. The first step is by improving your health. And then we can get into the psychology. Because we could even then look at, well, you need to understand on who you are, what you want, and just just developing that self-awareness because it's that self-awareness which allows you to create change. Because if you're trying to change how you respond to fear, but you don't know who you are, where you are, what you're feeling, then what are you going to change? Because you need to know where you are first in order to change how you respond. So to develop self-awareness, how can we do that? Well, there's many different things. You could look into expressive writing. You could look into gratitude. You could look into your environment, which is the average of the five people you spend your most time with. And this also means interacting with too. So, you know, we have to look into all these different psychological aspects. And then once you develop your health, once you develop your self-awareness, then you need to develop your integrity. And this is what you want. Where are you going? Is it conducive? And what happens if you don't do the things that you're currently doing and do something different? And, you know, this, if I was going to label it down into those simple steps, that's something what I try to relate to the listeners for them to try and focus on. But for instance, with me, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm different to most people. For instance, like I don't believe in life and death. So therefore I am not scared of death because I don't think it exists because I think we're all an extension of consciousness. So for me, just because our human mind is unable to comprehend with the visual 
scope of which is so narrow, it's just a smidge of what we can see and perceive as life. And we therefore label anything what we can't comprehend or understand as death, just because we are, it's not in our realms of vision and understanding. I think that's negligent. I think it's naive. I think it's naive to say if we can't see it being alive, it doesn't mean it's not alive. You know, so yeah, you know, so when you, when you reach that point, then I don't really think anything really scares you. So you, I mean, you've hit the point of absolute fearless, you know, (laughs) on the other end of the spectrum, man, like, yeah, to have an absolute, there is no fear. Like, well, well, when we look at death, I'm looking forward to death. Okay. That doesn't mean I'm suicidal, but it means I'm looking forward to it. You know, I enjoy my life and I have a very, very good life and I'm grateful of it. And I want that life to last as long as it can. But whatever's around the corner is around the corner. Yeah, I mean, it's a, um, it's a, it's a powerful um, perspective. You know, I, don't think, I don't think many people would have a, a similar mindset in that regard. So, um, yeah, I, I want to sort of, um, I want to go circle back a little bit to like why obviously a lot of people are, you know, working out, doing all the physical training, things like that. But when it comes to like, you know, you said before we even decide to make any behavioral change, we still, we need to work in, we need to work the mind Mm -hmm. and like to make change, it first starts with getting the mind right. So why is it so difficult for so many people to do that? You know, because I mean, I've got friends in my circle that um, they really struggle to, like close friends actually that, that really just want to avoid. It's just the avoidance, ignorance is bliss. Instead, I'll just go, stay on autopilot. Um, why is it so? Why is it so difficult for people? Why is it, why is it so challenging for people to take the time out to, to actually look within? And I'm I'm putting my hand up as well, man. It's it's hard for me as well. Like it's I'm not a superhero. Like it's it's hard as well for me. Like to take time out. And to like, you know, reminisce on like my soccer career, things like that. It's hard. It's hard. Mm. Yeah. Like, it, again, it's nothing any, anyone can master. It's always a nurturing progress. Um, but most people don't know who they are. Like, they don't know who they are. If you were to ask them the three magical questions, because I've got my seminar coming out on uh, mental well-being, and this is all tied into it, you know, the transgenerational trauma, finding out who you are, the purpose finding, all this stuff. But you have the three big questions. And, I, I you know, you know these questions because you, you've been round at mine and I've been drilling into people and, you know, and I've, I've challenged you from time to time with these. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I, I like asking these thought-provoking questions. But there's this questions, the series of questions where you can ask before you kind of get there. But the three big questions, to what I, I think resemble that self-awareness, or at least direction, would be asking someone what their purpose is. And that purpose should preferably be based on self. So it shouldn't be a selfless thing. It should be almost selfish. It's based on self. So if you were to die, what would you look back on your life and be proud to say you've achieved? That is what I would like to hear in the answer to this question. And the second one would be, what is your greater philosophical reason? And this is where it becomes more selfless. This is like, this is, sorry, more more selfless. Um, This is where, how can you help more people than just yourself? How can you help others experience your purpose? And then 
you have your legacy and this is how will you be remembered when you die? What is the story what you want people to say about you years after your death? And this is usually when you take that philosophical reason and you execute it in a revolution maverick type fashion. And when you understand those three questions, your, your purpose, your philosophical reason, your legacy, you know, it helps you develop this sense of direction at least on who you want yourself to be and where you want yourself to go. Mm. And it's quite hard for people to understand what that is. And there's a series of questions what you can ask before it, you know, what is your, what, what are your boundaries? What makes you angry? What you might, uh, top five thoughts you experience on a uh, day-to-day basis, you know, you name it. I've got a series of questions to help people cultivate the, the essence. But in order for people to, to develop a stronger sense of self, I'd say those three questions are almost the magical questions in which when you find the answer, it helps you cultivate this life compass. And it's almost as if you are now the center of the compass. That is your gravitational pull. And whatever you want to attract into life, it will start coming towards you. You know what direction to move in and you know what is going to be conducive or distracting for that path. So then once you understand your purpose, your philosophical reason, your legacy, it makes it easier for you to say, I'm not doing this. I am doing this. Yeah. And I guess that ties into understanding yourself and understanding yourself then enables you to become more self-aware. Mm. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, looking at the, the actual reasoning and, and the rationale for someone to even engage in something like that would ultimately be to, uh, in, I would say like it just increase happiness. Cause like when you're living in alignment with your values and you're mm. everything, you know, you're working towards that one purpose, your well being and your vitality and your mental health, everything like it may not be perfect, but it's definitely conducive to that. And it's very, when you start merging away from, um, you know, going against your values, that's when there's like knots come up and, you know, you start getting negative and like things become a little bit more, um, there's more obstacles that are thrown at you. So I think that's definitely, I've noticed that myself, like when I'm on my mission, when I'm on my path, when I'm doing my, my thing, which is, you know, empowering others with, um, the health education they need to become better. That feels so good, man. Like it's so internally actually, it's actually external, right? Like, cause I'm getting feedback from other people um their feedback's actually fueling my fire you're the same as me man i know like people giving people that give you feedback on like your courses and the clients that you work with like when you get feedback saying oh jake you've done an amazing job like you know i'm pregnant now like for example yeah clients by the way <laughs> like, like whichever issues getting pregnant and that was the goal <laughs> yeah yeah um like that i'm sure is like it's very it's very rewarding like that's definitely yeah. i'm sure for you that's that would form part of your legacy is like you want to be remembered for that guy who who what like how do you want to be remembered i want to be remembered by the guy which stood up and in the face of danger in the face of being ridiculed was able to speak the truth about the oppressed data which and is so empowering to enable us to access health and merge all aspects of the medicinal industries together and unify it. Because quite often when we look at it, the medicinal industries 
conventional Chinese medicine, you name it, they're all segregated. What I'm really wanting to do is marry that. I want it to be joined together. I want it to be harmonious because there's elements, for instance, like with the conventional industry blood work, for instance, you do someone's blood work, you know, and you find out they've got, uh, high MCV, and then you could be starting to look into B12 and B9. That that's valuable. That's quite hard to tell if you didn't really have the blood work. Yes, you could look at the symptom picture and see if they have numbness and tingling in the extremities, uh, poor motor abilities. But you know, it, it, there's there's benefits from all, which which we need to take into account. So my legacy is to basically be remembered as the one which didn't mind being ridiculed the one which stood up for the truth when no one else was brave enough to do so but in the betterment of humanity by harmonizing and marrying all modalities of healing together mm, i love that man well let's um yeah let's expand a little bit more on that so like obviously right now it's very much segregated um and i mean although you know studying naturopathy we try and incorporate it, different elements of you know we do look at you know um Oh, physical, you know, physical examinations, biofeedback, different markers. Um, but, I mean, how do you feel that is going to play out? Like, do you feel like, obviously, there's a lot of political agendas at play, but, um, I mean, the ultimate benefit of doing that and bringing them all together is what? Better outcomes for the patients? Like, what, what is, what's the reason? Why is it, why do we need to merge all these different, uh, elements of medicine together because the the human body is a beautiful unique individual element and what may work well for one person may not work well for the next and when we look at let's say let's say you learn um naturopathy but then you're dealing with someone who's got ptsd and maybe some nlp or timeline hypnotherapy would be better but you can't really do that through giving them some ashwagandha and some, some rhodiola, you know, doing them both together would work. Yeah. Combining both for a better exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's to, to make sure you have all the tools to work with the job, you know, and you know, you go to a job and you may just need a screwdriver. But you go to another job, you may need a screwdriver, a hammer and some pliers. And that's the, that's the benefit of having all the different tools in your toolbox. Yeah. It's almost like, um, you're setting yourself up as like a, instead of becoming an expert in one thing, you're, it's almost like you're a generalist, but like, well, technically you can't be an expert from my, from my perspective. What about the 10,000 hour rule? 10, yeah, that's just fucking bullshit. <laughs> but like, when you look at uh, like the expert, well, what is an expert in like dermatology? So wouldn't that be someone who's, hmm. But then, but then we could look at okay, envir- like environmentalists, or, or like, or we could even look into like the. There's so many things which can affect the skin. Which, yeah. if you just learn one keyhole, you're neglecting other aspects. Mm. So to be an es- uh, to 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 understand everything, basically, when we look at quantum science, okay, it basically means like like Einstein's uh, spooky action at a distance, okay. One thing which can happen on the other side of the world can affect me right now. When you understand quantum mechanics, quantum psychology, quantum science, we can't become an expert in this specific field because we understand the interdependency and synergy from all aspects, not just within us, but without us too. 
So an expert isn't really an expert because it's neglecting things which can influence it. Mm. Yeah. I, can, I mean, I can see that. Yeah. Cause then otherwise, mm. yeah. I mean, that would be, mm. yeah, it's an interesting one, man. Interesting. Yeah. It's going <laughs> to piss a lot of people off, but yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm just trying to think, is there anything else sort of you wanted to right now that you're most passionate about? Cause I know you're passionate about many things. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else? Is, you, is this your way of moving on to, to vaccines here? <laughs> Transition. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just dance around there. Let's just dive into it. Let's talk about vaccines. Let's shoot the big V word out there. So, um, I guess the more I speak, the less you have to, and the less at risk you are. <laughs> so I'll just rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. So when we look at vaccines, okay, it's a big, 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 big topic. Okay. Cause the science around it has become taboo. And anyone which speaks against the narrative is labeled an anti-vaxxer. And they get bullied, they get named, they get shunned, they get oppressed, they get ridiculed. But science needs to be questioned to refine its outcome. It's the whole point of doing tests. You have your hypothesis, you have your analysis, you get the results. And then you continue and refine it. So you have to question it. But the thing is, when we look into this, there's some huge, huge questionable things. I mean, let's just start with the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, okay? And this act actually made any manufacturer exempt from liability, which is any, any manufacturer of any... Vaccine manufacturer, yeah, right. exempt okay. and, from and liability. At the time, were there many? Were they worldwide or like... Here you'd you'd have Glaxo, Pfizer, you know the big dogs, the big dogs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. This is 1986, okay. Yeah. Um, and they're exempt. Okay. From and any, they still are. Any dam- any any injury, death. I mean, I've had over 60 messages. You can find it on my Instagram of people saying how they've had that they've had a vaccine and they develop PCOS, endometriosis, paralysis, cerebral palsy, um, Crohn's, IBD, seizures, you name it, you know? Um, but yeah, that's questionable. And then just whilst we're looking in this kind of legality kind of aspect too, well, if we look at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe and i believe this was in 2010 so now we have to question manufacturers aren't liable and the supreme court labels them as unavoidably unsafe so already i've got alarm bells ringing here but then we look and the the excipient the kind of um sorry, not the excipient list the the insert yeah. of vaccines and we can see on section 13.1 on from my knowledge, every vaccine, it states that vaccines aren't evaluated for the potential to cause cancer. So now they're not assessed for the carcinogenic effects, which is interesting. And well, then we go with the theory, well, you know, 
at least have stopped the kind of rate of disease. And again, there was a study done and this study uh, was, well, sorry, it's a summary uh, of the annual summary of vital statistics. And it was trends in the health of Americans during the 20th century. And it states the majority, uh, sorry, the, major, the major declines in child mortality that occurred in the first third of the 20th century have been attributed to a combination of improved socioeconomic conditions in this country and the public health strategies to protect the health of Americans. And these measures included water treatment, food safety, organized solid waste disposal, and public education about hygiene practices. And it goes on to say, thus vaccinations do not account for the impressive declines in mortality seen in the first half of the century. So that's interesting as well. So that's something to take into account. And then we could even look at, well, people turn around and go, oh, well, when we look into whooping cough for instance you know it's it's dropped downloads well when we actually look at when whooping cough was introduced not just in england but also in the u.s it went from sky high we're talking i can share my screen i'll share my screen here yeah oh i can't share at the minute but um i know it won't let me um you paste the link on the side i can open it yeah, sure. So when we when we look into this, you can see the rates of the disease and how they have just plummeted before the introduction of the vaccine. So you can see how they've just dropped down and not only for whooping cough, but also measles too. Mm. And then we can look at the rate of infectious disease, which has gradually decreased, but it also appears on that same rate of decrease. There's been a similar rate increasing for the autoimmune disease. And then we look, okay, well, that's interesting. Autoimmune disease is increasing, infectious disease is decreasing. And then we look into the 1986 schedule, there's 12 shots administered. And then we look into the number of childhood vaccines um, in um, 2017. And there's 54 shots. And then we look into the childhood chronic illness and developmentally kind of dis- disabilities, what they have, the prevalence in that. And in 18, 1986, there's 12.8%. Which is interesting. And then we go to 2017, there's 54 shots, and 2011, there's 54% of childhood chronic illness and developmental disability, which, you know, it could just be a coincidence. Who knows? But then we look into other aspects too, and we can start looking into some some interesting questions like, well, let's let's have a look inside the vaccines, you know. What what sort of things are included? Well, when we look into the ingredients, we have bovine serum, albumin, fetal bovine serum, and bovine calf serum, which all come from cows. We have Vero cell DNA, which comes from an African green monkey. We have hydrolyzed porcine gelatin and DNA from porcine circoviruses, which comes from pig. We have Madame Darby canine kidney cell proteins, which comes from the cocker spaniel. 
We have some funky word, which you can't even pronounce, but that's from the full army worm. We have chicken protein and other animals in there, which is interesting what we're injecting into our children, injecting into us. And in addition to that, we have the aborted fetal cell cultures there. So we have the MRC5, which is used in things like shingles vaccine, hep A, uh, yellow fever, and some others. And then we could look into the WI38, which is another uh, kind of cell from an aborted fetus, which is in MMR. And we have now got aborted fetus cells in the vaccines. And that's going to create an issue with identity and self-identity, because if you're on day one of birth and you're injected with these vaccines, which contain cells from someone of a different sex, that's going to create a bit of confusion to yourself from your own cellular communication because now you have cells from possibly a different gender inside your body on day one. Or you have cells or you have aspects from animals, cows, pigs, chickens, insects in your vaccine, which is interesting. And then we look at day one of birth, baby gets injected with, um, I think it's it's hep A. And then we look here, if you just type in hep A and you look into this, well, hepatitis A is a virus which is passed from... Let's just look here. I just want to be double double CERN of this transmission. Here we go. Double CERN on this one. Uh, 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 uh. Hep A virus transmitted primarily by the fecal oral, oral root. Is that the one? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll get back to that one in a second. I'll get back to that one in a second. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we look at the, we look at the 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 stuff what we're vaccinating against, and on day one of birth, there's there's viruses which we could only obtain through IV drug use or sex, which we are injecting into the baby and they want to birth. So again, the, the questions are, okay, why are we implementing these sort of things if the rate of getting these diseases have dropped down to minimal? Why are we implementing such vaccines for if babies were to have sex or take IV drugs? And then we could look into how developed nations that administer the most vaccines tend to have the worst infant mortality rates. We could look into how another study found that um, infants who received the most vaccines had the worst hospitalization death rates. And this was a study which analyzed 38,801 reports of infants who had adverse events after receiving vaccinations. We could look into how boys who received three doses of mercury-containing hepatitis B vaccine during infancy were 8.63 times more likely than unvaccinated boys to become developmentally disabled. 
I think it was Hep B, by the way. It was Hep B, not Hep A. That's why I got confused. I confused myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could even look into how they compare the science and the safety data on the oral consumption of aluminium in adults. And the oral absorption of aluminium is around 0.1%. But yet we are then translating that from an adult with a gastrointestinal tract, which is integral on their consumption of foods containing aluminium or products or whatever, basing that on a baby and injecting that baby, which bypasses the natural barriers of the defense, digestion, detoxification methods, and going straight into the bloodstream. And that has a 100% absorption rate, whereas the oral absorption rate of aluminium is 0.1%. So now you can see that it's, it's ridiculously high. Because the absorption rate is 100%, not 0.1%. So it's incomparable because the, this, this, the safety data correlates it to of um, aluminium, what they can get from breastfeeding. But yet, when we look into this, the exposure from vaccines when compared to breastfeeding is over 628 times. And then we look into aluminium, and that's been shown to cause dementia, Alzheimer's, and neurodegeneration. We can look into how autism, mental retardation, and speech disorders were significantly more common in children who received DTAP vaccines with thrombosol. Again, another study which from 2014. We can also find further studies showing how developmental delays are two to three times more likely in children who receive vaccines with mercury. And this study compared 5,699 children diagnosed with developmental delays to 48,528 children without delays in their development. We could also look into what I was mentioned earlier with the influenza and how the CDC estimates that influenza has resulted between 12,000 and 61,000 deaths annually since 2010. However, when you actually look at the statistics, you look at influenza and it's only 6,515, 6,515. But when you look at it on the causes of death and you look at the, the number of causes of death all the way down to number eight, and that's where influenza and pneumonia is good together, influenza and pneumonia, that total number is 55,672. So when we take that into account, we can really see how the manipulating data by coining influenza with pneumonia and inflating the figures anywhere from 84% up to 835% to then promulgate and push this influenza vaccine upon us. We could even look how the Blue Cross Shield, and this was only in um, one state to my um, knowledge. I think there was only in Michigan. Uh, but the Blue Cross Shield awards doctors with $400 per vaccinated child when 63% of their target is met when compliant with their vaccine schedule. So we can see how this in doctors' kind of monetary interest. We could look how universities such as the Berkeley University actually rejected funding to research vaccines, which was uh, non-conditional. It was an unconditional 15,000 investment to look into vaccines and they rejected it because it would basically create difficulties for them with their sponsors. And then we could look into how individuals who receive HPV vaccine 
had an increased chance of developing serious autoimmune diseases such as lupus, which was five times more likely, and alopecia, which was eight times more likely. And this study analyzed 22,011 females aged 18 to 39. We could look into the leading cause of death in the USA being heart disease, which accounts to 647,457 deaths in 2017. You could actually argue it's atrogenic deaths, but we won't even get into that. But when we look into measles, mumps, infections, they're actually associated with decreased risks of mortality from cardiovascular disease. So hang on. If we have measles and mumps, that'll decrease our chance from dying from the number one killer of in the US. It's like, well, maybe measles and mumps is probably a good thing. If a lot of people are dying from heart disease and measles and mumps is going to reduce your chance of dying from it and it's the number one cause of death, you know? We could even go into looking at chickenpox during childhood, which has also been found to have protective effects against coronary heart disease. We can look into how shingles vaccine significantly increases the risk of developing arthritis and alopecia. You could look into how the introduction of hep B vaccinations after they were introduced into New Zealand, there was a 48% increase in type 1 diabetes in children aged 0 to 14 years of age. And in France, had a 61% increase in type 1 diabetics in children aged 0 to 4 years of age. You could look into polio. And thousands of children in India were paralyzed following a polio vaccination campaign. When we actually look into it, DDT was a huge component which was causing a lot of polio. And then we look again back into the Hep B vaccine and find that adults who received Hep B vaccine were five times more likely to develop multiple sclerosis, eight times more, 18 times more likely to develop rheumatoid arthritis, nine times more likely to develop lupus, and 7.2 times more likely to develop alopecia. We could look into um, children who were not recently vaccinated and children which were vaccinated by the recommended schedule, and those which were vaccinated by the recommended schedule were eight times more likely to have febrile seizures on the day of their first vaccinations and four times more likely on the day of the second vaccinations. You could even look into the diabetes again, and there's a paper which analyzed 11 years of health data to evaluate the link between childhood vaccinations and type 1 diabetes, and it found that one dose of MMR increased the risk of diabetes by 88%. Two doses of oral polio vaccine double the risk of diabetes. So it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And you can just see all these issues. And you can even look into the, the excipient list on the CDC schedule. And you can see that these polyscore by 80. Polyscore by 80 is used to deliver chemotherapy drugs to the brain. So Having any metals inside a vaccine like aluminium, which is an adjuvant, which they say is to their stimulate an immune response to, to kind of like stimulate the antigen production. But aluminium can accumulate in the brain. Baby's blood brain barriers aren't developed for at least past the age of six months. In addition to that, you are then using tween 80 or polyscopic 80, which is going to increase the deliverance of those heavy metals to the baby's brain. No wonder why the rate of autism is exponential and it's now one in every 36 children. And they're actually creating different subtypes of autism to kind of flatten out the curve because it's an exponential growth. So there's a lot we can, you know, put forward to the table. Yeah. Obviously it's, it's um, it can be overwhelming. Like when you, when you dive deep into some of these stats, like it's, it's, it's scary, man. Like it's really, 
it's frightening to see that these are real numbers and real issues. But my question is, I've, I've been thinking about this in the last few months. I'm sort of like, is there a way to, like, obviously I believe that there'll never be a time when everyone is absolutely forced to get vaccinated. I really hope that doesn't come to, like, in Melbourne. But I don't know what your perspective is. I don't know if you can foresee the future here. But I really, really hope that doesn't get to the point where we're all forced to vaccinate with whatever um, vaccine they come up with or whatever drug they want to administer. But my question is, and this is me being all biohacker and like, <laughs> like wanting to know, like, is there a way to receive the vaccine but render it inactive? Or like I know what you mean. I know I thought this as well, right? But the thing is, right, we really don't know what the fuck they're putting in. So we because, don't come on, but we they have to disclose okay. what's on the label. They have to disclose Let me show you. Let me show you something. Okay, C D C excipient list, okay? And they list that. They, they list that on the insert you said. List all of that, list all of all the stuff what I just showed you. But there's there's stuff here where it will literally just say I'm, I've pulled up the C D C's website, okay? And it sure. Um, and it'll say non-viral protein. No. Like, what's non-viral protein mean? What does non-viral protein mean to you? What does DNA? What's DNA? Like, like that could be anything, right? I mean, we've got inside the Hep A. It was Hep B, which I was uh, getting confused with Hep A and Hep B. Hep B is transmitted through uh, IV use and um, um, sex and that's what they administer on day one. But the Hep A vaccine, when we look in this, if you if you literally pull this up for the for the viewers which can see the screen, you go onto page two, okay, and the third one from the top, you have um, you have your aluminium, and then the second ingredient, non-viral protein, third ingredient, DNA, fourth ingredient, bovine albumin, then fifth ingredient, formaldehyde. Well, that's what you use to embalm dead bodies. You know, uh, and and then at the end of it, other process chemical resu- residues. What's other process chemical residues? So, so, so this is on their website, okay? And and MRC five cellular proteins here. That's that's the aborted fetal cells, and then uh, we have obviously you can see uh, you can even see food dye. And yeast protein. And interestingly, there's even castor. I think there's castor oil in here somewhere. And this is why people have a cross-reactivity to peanuts. Because the castor oil, um, you've got egg proteins, polyscorbate 80. You know, if, if you just pause on any one of these, we can just literally break it down and look into it. Chicken protein, first ingredient. You know, And then you have human serum, albumin. So my, my question is... Who- these are all developed by different companies, right? It's not just by... Yeah, yeah, all different companies. Yeah, so the CDC is just listing what's on the market, what's been released and approved, right? They've passed... What have they passed? So to be on the market, what have they... Um, well, you know, the, the kind of average for the safety data testing is around four days after injection. Oh, what? Four days, so they get injected, and then that max usually is around four days. Sometimes two weeks. Just four days. Yeah, Yeah. but don't forget, you're a baby, so you're not able to speak and communicate that you're in pain. Yeah, 
But yeah, as you can see here, I mean, look at this one. See, see this, this, this funky saponin, that's a tree. You've got this saponin purified from plant extract, a bit of tree in your vaccine over there, you know? Yeah. For the plant-based dieters out there. That's a vegan vaccine there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we don't know if it is because it says host cell protein and DNA again. So that could be anything. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, what I'm saying is, well, this is what they're declaring. What are they not declaring? It's crazy. Yeah. You know? So, and it's not hard to find this. You literally just, it's on the cdc.gov website, as you can see right now. Yeah. <clears throat> so then obviously like people are standing up against this, but then how do the companies like this, what do they say in rebuttal? Like how do they even. It's safe and effective. Because they repeat the dogmatic mantra saying it's a safe and it's safe and effective. Okay, well let's analyze the effective component. Is it- if you if you, if you if you have a look at the rate of whooping cough and measles and how that decreased, and how the rate of polio decreased when they banned DDT, it, the, the, what, what what they often say to us is correlation doesn't mean causation but yet their model is all based on correlation not causation so so it correlated with the time of the disease decreasing but it was also due to other factors like improved cleanliness improved food hygiene the banning of ddt Okay. And then we look at the autoimmune diseases which come up as well, which are increasing, such as the alopecia, the rheumatoid arthritis, the multiple sclerosis. We look into the infertility and all these other aspects. And how can they say it's safe and effective when they're legally classed by the Supreme Court as unavoidably unsafe? And even on Section 13.1, it says that no, th- this vaccine is not tested for its carcinogenic effects. And there's not been, I think, I think there may actually be one double-blind placebo-controlled study now, but there may only be one, that is it. And when you look into the fraudulent effects of the studies, I mean, I've, there's, there's, there's even the data hiding what they do. So there's a study uh, to assess its efficacy for uh, vaccines in pregnancy. Okay. And the study is called Va- uh, Association of Tdap Vaccination with Acute Events and Adverse Birth Outcomes Among Pregnant Women with Prior Tetanus Containing Immunizations. I think they've pulled the study down now. But the, the objective was to determine whether the recipient, sorry, the receipt of um, Tdap vaccine during pregnancy administered in close intervals from prior tetanus containing vaccinations is associated with acute adverse events in mothers and adverse birth outcomes, okay? Now, when you actually read into it and you actually read the study, it goes, we, ex- we also excluded pregnancies with non-live birth outcomes, stillborn, spontaneous abortion, therapeutic abortion, so on and so forth. So they actually excluded the data, which they didn't want you to see, by excluding the stillborns, the, the, the abortions and all these other factors. And their conclusion was among women who received D, uh, sorry, Tdap vaccination during pregnancy, there was no increased risk of acute adverse events or adverse birth outcomes for those who had been previously vaccinated less than two years before or two to five years before compared with those who had been vaccinated 
more than five years before. These findings suggest that relatively recent receipt of prior tetanus containing vaccinations does not increase the risk after Tdap, uh, Tdap uh, vaccination in pregnancy. But they excluded the ones where the babies died. These, these are the studies. And then they burned studies which showed that um, um, African-Americans had a 360% increased risk of autism. And they literally got the, got the papers and put it in a bin and burnt it and oppressed that data. Andrew Wakefield was part of that team, I believe, or, he, or at least exposed it. Yeah. there's not much to say really like it just mm. i mean my my naturopathic voice in my head is just just alarm bells are like just ringing thinking about all the other therapies mm. <laughs> and people we- are in disbelief as well right because people hear this go oh no it's not true oh that's just the vaccine oh it's better to do this they have this cognitive dissonance but they need to part from their past belief and i actually i actually put something up on my instagram saying intelligence is the ability to comprehend an opposing view without being gullible you know and that's what people need to do they need to part from what they've previously learned and view it with a blank canvas and contemplate this without any prior judgment Mm. rather than being married and cemented into these fixed paradigms and ideologies well, it's harder to it's harder to unlearn than to learn something new, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. they're stuck. They're sort of stuck. In yeah. yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm going to have to shoot in a second, by the way, brother. Yeah, no worries, man. Yeah. We'll, we'll wrap yeah. it up. We'll wrap it up now. Yeah. Um, geez, it was uh, an episode packed full of um, some interesting topics and some, you know, some some fun stuff. And hopefully, mm. our listeners learn something new. But um. For, yeah, for the new ones who haven't heard about Jake, where can they where can they find you, your socials? Um, depends if it's got deleted. Sorry? But, <laughs> depends if my account's got deleted yet by the time this comes out because I've had messages being deleted, conversations deleted. I've had uh, they delete people from following me and they've had to re-follow me around three to four times. Um, they delete between one to 3,000 followers a week, but I still get a net gain. Um, they delete posts. They stop me from putting stories up. They stop people from sharing my stories. They stop people from commenting. Stop me from commenting. Even Mailchimp's been deleting my email campaigns. So, you know, at the minute you can find me. We'll see how long that lasts. But obviously, the information what I'm telling people they they don't want you to know. But they can find me at Coach Jake Carter. That's my Instagram. My website's CoachJakeCarter.com. And if all else fails, then um, if if I've gone missing, then it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> yeah it's crazy man yeah yeah alrighty everyone well um, thank you for for tuning in and um, yeah again thanks Jake for coming on to the show today and um, we'll be in touch after this show and I'm going to wrap, <laughs> up, gonna wrap it up right? yeah. thanks, thanks for joining yeah. me man. thank you my pleasure man my pleasure Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.